That is the second time you've spoken out of turn, Miss Granger. Are you incapable of restraining yourself, or do you take pride in being an insufferable know-it-all? He's got a point, you know. It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Saturday. Happy weekend to you, wherever you may be. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour. And we also get another chance, now that he is tan-rested and ready from his brief vacation, we get to work once again with Nathan Miller. Tall guy Nathan at the board. How are you doing, Nathan? Good morning, Gary and Suzanne. It's a pleasure to be back here with you all again. Okay, let's okay, let's go ahead and so get that I, out of the way I, once, I and then, and, and <laughs> because I'm too tempted to say things like Pip, Pip, and Govna and all the rest of these. Things. I think he had a Boston accent, not an English accent. That's right. Which accent were you going for, Nathan? The Boston, Boston, Boston. I thought so. Spent a little too much time the in the Fenway Park. There you go. But you had a <laughs> wicked good time. I did. It was great. I went over for my cousin's wedding, which is really beautiful. Also saw the Sam Adams Brewery and topped it off by going to see a Red Sox game. Wow, that's great. Fenway Park, fabled yes, Fenway. Oh, that's great. I hope did the Red Sox win? They did, but I didn't get to see them win because it was one of their games where they don't have a roof of their field like we do in T-Mobile Park here in Seattle. And it started downpouring at about the sixth inning, so they paused the game, ended up being paused for about two hours, but we ended up leaving because we had to get back to the hotel and catch a flight the next day, and just kept up with the game on the phone, and Red Sox won 6-3, to three, but I did get to see a couple home runs go over the green monster over in left field. Well, that's good. Good for you. Yeah. I hope to get there good. myself Memorable. Someday. Absolutely. We're, we're all about the accents today, whether it's Boston or English. <laughs> yes, indeed. The charming British accent, particularly when uh, elocuted so well by our guest today, who we're talking about, I like to call her Bex, but more formally, Becky Walsh. This is a special appearance for her today. It is. This is Becky's 10th appearance on our show. First time she was with us was in 2010. She has just joined the double digit club. She's, yes. And and it's, you know, it's exclusive enough. Double digits. It's pretty good, Becky. Becky Walsh has been an author, teacher, consultant, speaker, and workshop leader in the field of intuition and spirituality for many years. She's the author of at least five books, including the Amazon bestseller, Advanced Psychic Development. She's best known for having presented and produced her own award-winning weekly radio show in London and has made regular TV and live appearances featuring intuition and comedy, a great duo. Her her uh, website is beckywalsh.com. We'll be sure to give that out once again before the show ends. And for the 10th time, Becky Walsh, <laughs> and one of those people we've actually met in person, welcome to Manson Mitchell. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here. I can't believe it. And listening to the kind of that resume and all of that, I, and also the accent, I'm trying to sound, I'm trying really hard not to sound like Mary Poppins. 
<laughs> okay. Okay. Well, here's a spoonful of sugar for you right here. <laughs> We're delighted to have you with us again, Becky, of course. And uh, there were so many ways I could go into a soft opening of interviewing you. So, but here you just brought up Mary Poppins. I have been told by more than one Brit that you, if you're in the UK, you can tell a lot about someone's educational background, about their class status, even perhaps about their their worldview or their political opinions based on the regional accent within England, that island nation. Is that an overstatement or can people really put others on a Brit radar? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, you've really just picked up on something that I find totally fascinating because um, going back in the day, there were certain jobs that had power, you know, that might be somebody who's working for the police or in politics or and um, or councils and there's and doctors. And there's like a language that goes with what you might call the privately educated. So people who paid for their education were also given what was known as elocution lessons. So you would have the middle class, have like middle class and upper class and people who don't have to work for a living um, would have this talking Hello, I'm talking like I have a plum in my mouth. And they always got jobs for the BBC because, you you know, if you go back into radio broadcasting, um, even you can sometimes even hear it on Radio 4 or the World Service and the BBC. Um, there's this sort of very pronounced English and you might hear it when you hear the Queen speak. And then you know what kind of class you're privately educated, you've got a paid for education, but it also locked down the jobs that were and the opportunities that were available to you. Um, and still to this day, there's a lot of jobs that will have wording in such a convoluted way in order to keep out the working class. So um, and that's really bad when it kind of comes to um, diversity and inclusion. So if English isn't your first language, some of these really convoluted sort of English using these really, really long and very old words. Um, and don't get me started on the fact that they used to also teach Latin in those schools. So there is still that class diver- um, that class diversity, but you don't see it quite so much in, in accents now. So you can have someone, it's unlikely, but you can have someone who's gone to Eton who might have like a normal working class accent. And then, of course, you've got the um, divide between the north and south of England. So the more northern you go, like up towards Scotland, um, the the harsher the accent is sometimes for people to understand. And then, of course, the south, more um, London areas. London was also split into Cockney, which is, all right, geezer, how's it going? Apples and pears, mate. Um, whereas then you'd also have the kind of like posh Chelsea sort of accents. So, yeah, you can. And I deliberately lost my northern accent in order to do better in life. I, I deliberately lost it. Isn't that nice? Very interesting. As long as I've known you, mm-hmm. Becky, I have never heard that, nor have yes. I heard that from anyone who hails from the British Isles. That it's a remarkable act of self-liberation. And you did it linguistically. You did it with the power of your own sound. Yeah, I I I would say that um because I when I wanted to get into radio, um at the time that I wanted to get into radio, there was it, it was like this, where the voices on radio were really well pronounced. Regional radio now likes to have regional voices because then it feels like it's more connected. Um, but at the time, you couldn't have got a job in, in the BBC. And even now, B- BBC is still 
um, very working class, um, no, sorry, very middle class um, and privately educated. And the same with, with a lot of our politics as well. So our politics, with it being um, Labour is working class and Conservative, private educated. So it's literally down the line with where you went to school is how you get the breaks. In the United States, the people who are on television and um, more so, but um, probably radio too, but people who want to be on television, especially if they were from the South, had to get rid of their Southern accents because in the United States, there is a perception that if you have a, a very heavy Southern accent, you're not as well educated. And so people who want to be on television or in the news had to, I don't know if they took elocution lessons or how they did it, but they had to lose the Southern accent in order to be more uh, vanilla, more generic in their speech, because that was not considered a, a good way to talk. It's interesting. I, I was putting together uh, TED conferences, so in Bristol. So I do a TEDx Bristol, and um, one of the applications we got was from um, an Asian classical musician uh, guy, really fascinating guy. And he was saying, you know, I want more Asian people to realise that they can get into classical music. And then, um, and he grew up in the north of England, uh, moved to London. You know, went to went to sort of music school. I think he went to the Guildhall, which is really well known. And I said to him, I said, do you know what would be more interesting as a TED talk? And he went, what? I said, why don't you have an accent? Why is your accent what I would consider the type of accent that classical musicians have? And he went, oh, my God, I changed my accent. I said, so here you are saying that Asian people should get into music but you have actually changed an aspect of yourself from your Northern England background in order to fit in with the, the, with the um, posh boys that do music. And it had never occurred to him that he'd done that, but he knew he had, but he'd just done it. And he said, I couldn't be understood. No one understood what I was saying. So I had to change my accent. And I have to admit, when I lived in America, I did also pick up an American accent so I could be understood. <laughs> Was- yes, yes, an American <laughs> accent. And we've heard that with people on television, we'll have Australians and English people and and people who speak English, but, you know, very differently, that will develop the American accent. And Gary and I just think that's hysterical. Yeah, but I mean, sometimes, I mean, I once was given scrambled eggs when I ordered a skinny latte. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> that happens too. There's one actor in particular, I like him, and he's one of Suzanne's favorites. I believe he was in The Devil Wears Prada as well as appearing on American television, Simon Baker. He's an Australian, he's an Aussie, and yet when he speaks American-style English, he does it in a way that would make you swear he was from Los Angeles, nowhere near Sydney. It's really interesting because Australian actors in, in some way are the best in the world at doing accents. So an English person trying to do American or Australian or an American person trying to do English or Australian struggle more. And the reason being is when I lived in Australia, I realised I was only there for a year as backpacking. Um, they play an awful lot 
of television that is either British or American. So, oh. so from a very young age, they hear the accent. So yes. it's easy for them to mimic it. Where I doubt you get like American TV sh- um, uh, Australian TV shows. Maybe the odd episode of Home and Away, but you probably have never watched an Australian film. You know, because they just don't export in the same way that American films export. So that's fascinating. Only Crocodile Dundee, but I'm not sure even <laughs> that was an Australian film. <laughs> I'm not sure oh, it was a film. <laughs> <laughs> and, and even in the U.S., we do, um, we do have our accents. I'm from Chicago, flat A's. And so I get made fun of a lot, you know, for having uh, for having that accent. Gary grew up on the West Coast and he very quickly identified my flat A's and he can imitate people from Chicago, from the Midwest. That's how I get along with them there. I just got a note from Nathan. And thank you, sir, for that crocodile hunter. There's one from Australia with Steve Irwin saying crikey and talking about little (laughs) blighters there. And God bless him, you know. R.I.P. Imagine the the dangers. He lived in Australia. He was up close and personal, to say the least, with some of the most dangerous wildlife on Earth. And he comes to off the coast of Florida to follow a, a ray, a manta ray. And that's what got him. That's what killed him. At the age of, I believe it was like 44, I saw that on the news. It was on CNN. They're right after it happened. It was breaking news. And it broke my heart. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. And his daughter, who you remember from when he was, you know, just this little girl being Bindi. into everything, has now really taken over his work. So that's really nice. So that's good. Very good from father to daughter. You know what? what is, um, and this was, this segue was not really intended, but uh, I'm going to use it anyway, because that's, I'm just that great radio person. We're talking about <laughs> all of these accents And one of the things that I was noticing in doing our preparation for today's show is you're talking uh, in several places about not wanting to be abandoned by your tribe. And, you know, the fact that uh, whatever is going to set us apart and make us different has the possibility of being rejected by people who are around us. And that that was one of the things that you were talking about with regard to being your authentic self. And, you know, how do you do that if you have an accent people can't understand you? Can you can you change your accent and still be authentically who you are? And it, it sounds like that question came up for you when you were talking with the Asian classical pianist. Can you be authentic? and not have your northern accent. So what is what is your feeling about um you know tribal living? I think it's I think it's very interesting and you know I, you know I can be talking from um, the place of white privilege with it really because you know at least I've never had to change my name in order for a CV, you know, a, a resume. I've never had to do that. You know there's lots of things that you know I can walk around in the world and just expect um, to be accepted and I think that this is very uh, very true of British people as well we just have this idea that everyone's just gonna like us but actually when you dig a little deeper into our history um, and not that not that long ago um, we're not uh, we are uh, we are not the uh, wonderful ambassadors of whatever whatever that we think we necessarily are um, as a group of people but one of the things I've been really concentrating on is 
I live in I live on a coastal town called Western Supermare, and it's going through a time of transformation. At the moment, it's um, it's sort of reinventing itself and rebranding itself, and lots of great things are happening in the town. But what's really interesting is when you start to um, want to create change um, and be somebody who is is steering that or excited about it, people who fear change will start to um, uh, try and, uh, what's the best way to put it, kind of, in a sense, discredit you. And I think that that fear of standing out in, in leadership or to do something impactful or something that you really care about or create change, even when the people who... Um, they want the change, but they fear change. And so rather than actually embrace it themselves, it's easier to kind of ridicule what somebody else's attempts are and say it's not going to work. And over a period of time, when you get too much of that, you can get to a point where you go, this is too um, heavy. It's too, it's too hard because that limbic part of your brain goes, you're going to die. It doesn't think oh, people won't like you, but eventually when you get through and people realise that you're on the right track and then they'll all be pleased and someone else will say it was their idea, which is usually what happens. <laughs> you know, you never get the credit. Someone will say it was their idea. Um, but there is, a, there is a point where your survival mechanism clicks in and goes, if you do not fit in, then you will, you will be kicked out of the tribe and you'll die alone in a cave. I mean, there's no caves available um, and I, I always say my worst nightmare is dying alone, smelling of cat's wee. And I don't own any cats. And um, so I don't know how that would possibly happen. But it's the idea of that cat lady. Nobody likes her. She's kind of alone on the end of the street. <laughs> but she has 25 cats. Um, and I think that we all have like a, a primal fear of abandonment. And I think that that when you're standing out for some change, that fear of abandonment can come a real conflict place for you for people uh, to move forward they always say it's lonely at the top and with that as a definition you can see why well you just said a whole big mouthful of things to unpack there <clears throat> i was thinking about um gary who is working to make something better on a board that he's on and the difficulty of people getting on board with making changes who exactly want those changes <clears throat> And the the idea that um, we were talking just yesterday in the morning about at what point in our lives, and for me, I, it was relatively early, it was decades ago, where I really stopped caring about what people thought. And my realization, my aha moment came when I was a people pleaser through my teens and part of my 20s. And so, you know, I wanted to be liked. It was important to be liked. And at some point I said, well, how ridiculous is that? I don't like everybody. Why would I expect everybody has to like me? It is very freeing to get to the point where you're saying to yourself, it doesn't matter if people like me or not. I'm going to do what I, what it is that I do. Mm. And I hear some of that in what it is that you're saying as well. You have to, I guess, get over that fear of abandonment 
to just go be yourself. I tell you the one thing that you may have that may be your superpower, and that's the man sitting opposite you. Because I wonder if you could feel the same when, so I think when you know you've got a supportive other half who's got your back no matter what, or you've got family members that are like that, if you're lucky enough to, or you've got a small group of really great friends, then I think um, you can absolutely go, ah, I don't really care what anyone else thinks. And, And that has a sense of power. I think if you're single and you're on your own, this is a little autobiographical. I think the, you won't believe what he said. And she said this, and I was so cross about that and blah, blah, blah. And then the other person goes, yeah, well, you know why? Well, why? Well, they're a bit of an idiot. You know what? You're right. And you can have that kind of unpacking uh, kind of um, awareness of the fact that you're held, you're still held. You've got support. I think it's, I think it's, I think my um, I think I've always been that kind of person where you always go, I'm okay with people not liking me exactly in the same way that you're talking about there, because um, I've got, you know, I can bounce back. I'm like a rubber ball. But one of the things that came out of COVID was the social isolation of COVID. I stopped believing that to be true and started to realise how much I needed to have somebody who has my back, somebody who cares about me. I needed at some point somewhere in my life to know I was loved. Otherwise, the bravery had um, lost its bottom. It had no grounding. Um, What do you think of that? That's very good. Yes, it is very good. I have a frog in my throat. You just jump in, Gary. (laughs) (laughs) I can't because you've already got a frog in there. But anyway, (laughs) I have found myself many, many times in my life having to stand alone, defending my opinions, and certainly maintaining them while being hopefully open-minded enough to hear alternative points of view. But at the end of the day, I believe what I believe, and I am willing to stand up for it. I am also willing to say, this is where I stand. Let's move on. Yeah. Maybe your contemporaries, your peers will join you in moving on, and maybe they won't. But as an individual, I think it's important for all of us to realize that you are who you are, and that will persist in its essential expression and all the ingredients that make up who you are, that will persist until you draw your last breath and quite possibly beyond them. So it's important to know yourself and to stand your solid ground in being who you really are. Yeah. Yeah. And I think so. And I think, it's it's that thing it's that double that double bit of like having the power to be able to listen to be willing to be challenged and to think through what other people are saying in having an open mind um but also know that when you've got something that you are really clear on and also because sometimes people don't have the same life experience as you or the same interactions as you and so they don't they don't know what you know and so it's an art form to be able to seduce somebody into understanding your way of thinking. And, and in a way, I was thinking about this, that, I, I don't know if conflict's the right word, but you know, that sort of, um, the, 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 the drama that comes up 
from the creation of change, the excitement of trying to move towards something, even the obstacles themselves play a part because if you didn't have it difficult, it wouldn't feel like anything. And the up of you know a little bit like when when people kind of like go and climb Kilimanjaro or go traveling or whatever if it wasn't for the stories of and then I lost my ticket and my passport was in the wrong case and then this happened or, or that happened but I got taken to this really nice girl on the on on the on the flight all, all of those things all of those dramatic things are the things that we look back on that make us feel the most alive so if it isn't for the um, one person who we feel isn't getting the message and is frustrating us would we, once we've had the breakthrough and everybody can see that the change was worth it, would 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 it feel as so satisfying or euphoric without the difficulty? So can we be grateful for all of it? I love that point of view. Thank you, Becky, for that. And holding that same coin, as it were, let me turn it around because I've had another kind of experience. I have looked back countless times on situations that were particularly difficult for me. Plans gone awry, difficulties with interpersonal communication, relationship breakups, whatever, whatever you have. I've experienced that kind of thing. And almost without exception, Becky, what I look at as stressful, what I look at as heartbreaking, even tragic, some months or years down the road, excites a certain nostalgia in me. So today's pain becomes tomorrow's nostalgia. And I thought, what a wonderful trick of the mind. And yet I think there must be something evolutionary about it at the same time. And I think it's the way that you see life as well, because um, you can look back on your past and kind of go, I'm a victim of these bad things happen to me. And actually, um, it, it's funny. We, uh, my family is quite divided because um, I have uh, a couple of members in the family that are always positive, that are always kind of like, oh, you know, it could have been worse. Um, and then I've got a couple of members in the family who are always really negative, like everything's horrendous. Like all of these, the, oh, it's been a difficult year. You know, you're like, oh, my God, it's only January. Um, so... <laughs> everyone has I'm sure everyone has a friend or a family member like that and it seems to me that for the people who see everything as as not working they have more bad things happen to them and uh, and I go how can your luck be so awful and I really believe that phrase when you say you make your own luck and I think that how you look back on your life as being the hero it's like that psychology triangle where we're always playing the role of either the hero the victim or the persecutor and um, we always try and deny that we're the persecutor and um, uh, and then until other people tell us and um, so I think it's how you look back on you, your past as being the hero of the story or if you look back on the past being the victim of it and um, you're clearly a hero that's that's all you need. <laughs> <laughs> this is Paul of the Beatles singing, things are getting better, getting better all the time. And then John intones, they couldn't get much worse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not going to say, and look what happened to both of them, because that would be inappropriate. But you can sort of go, it's a <laughs> Taking the big picture view. That's right. <laughs> we are talking very happily and meaningfully with Becky Walsh, Across the Big Pond. 
Let us take a couple of minutes. This is our only break of the hour. And when we come back, I want to introduce a German word. It seems to be all about language all of a sudden here on Manson Mitchell, and that's okay by us. So we'll get into those weeds on the other side of a short break. This is Manson Mitchell, and you are tuned in to the source of Alternative Talk in Seattle, AM 1150. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash manceandmitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomes Shep Siegel, who talks about tricksters and pop culture over the many decades, from the Marx Brothers to Robin Williams. On Saturday, Matt Shea, a very popular guest on any number of shows on AM 1150, takes a turn in the host chair. He lays out a landscape of his road trip adventures. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10, right here on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Make us part of your daily routine. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Becky Walsh. Becky, I, in your intro, I said that you've written, you're the author of five books, including the Amazon bestseller, Advanced Psychic Development. But I don't know that we've ever talked about all your five books. And this is the opportunity for you to let people know about your website, any social media, any books or anything else that you would like to share with our listeners so that they can learn a little bit more about you and what it is that you do. Yeah, well, it's funny uh, listening to the Pet Shop Boys just there because uh, one of my books is called Haunted West End Theatres and about theatre ghosts and ghost stories in the West End. And I actually worked with the Pet Shop Boys on a musical as well. So I know Neil Tennant and, uh, and Chris. So, uh, yeah, so one of them is about um, legendary theatre ghosts in the West End. Another one's called Intuitive Lovers, which is about using your intuition for uh, bedroom activities. Um, then there's Advanced Psychic Development, uh, you do know learning to act on intuition instantly, which is out by Hay House. And then I added a little dabble into writing something raunchy called Cupcakes and Coffee. But we'll leave that one just there. Park that. 
Very good. I love that bedroom (laughs) activities, or as I call them, activities of a decidedly personal nature. (laughs) It's it's 10 a.m. just after where you are. So, uh, yeah. (laughs) It's uh, yeah, it's not a midnight show. <laughs> and, and before we get to this German term, I wanted to bring up because I think it's significant to our day. I did want to ask you, Becky. Now over here, we we love that music, Pet Shop Boys, West End Girls. What is the social distinction? Let's call it a chasm between East End boys and West End girls. What is implied by that? Exactly what we were talking about at the top of the show. So uh, you East End boys were kind of like rough and ready. East End was a really um, uh, uh, deprived part of London. And the West End, you had to be very rich to live there. So you had kind of like your, your Chelsea's, your Sloan Street. Your... So um, East End boys were kind of rough and West End girls were posh. You so, know, it um, could have gone either way. It occurred to me that the East End boys were, you know, eaten or something and and the uh, West End girls were the slutty girls. But then the way you're describing it, it's more like uh, Billy Joel and uh, what's her name? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Billy Joel and what's her name? I believe you're speaking of Christy Brinkley. Yes, yes. Where where he was the working class guy and, and she was the, the posh girl. So, um, yeah, it, it, when you make those distinctions, you know, one is down, one is up, but... It, it doesn't really matter whether it's the boys or the girls that are the ups or the downs. There, there's just the fact that they have different cultural references and different cultural upbringing. Yeah, and it is more, yeah. more likely for the East End boys to be chasing the West End girls because the kudos of pulling um, uh, a girl of that nature because they would be the hard ones. So if you think about, I often think about the archetypes in the Spice Girls. You know, it's all feminine archetypes. And so um, Posh Spice would have been that one. And then you've got Sporty Spice, one of the lads, and Baby Spice, the virgin, potentially. Um, and then Ginger Spice, she would have been uh, an East End girl. Uh, so uh, so you can sort of like see the archetypes of kind of, of play in that way as well. So it would have been um, the power of the chase, I think, for an East End boy to get a West End girl. <laughs> Big status symbol. Yeah, exactly that. That's a trophy, as we say here in America. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the German word is the German word for the today for for today for the today. Now I'm even trying to translate <laughs> that into German. The, our German word for today is Weltschmerz. Translated into English, it's two words: world pain. Weltschmerz indicating a state of affairs that causes one pain to consider the worldwide circumstances in which we all find ourselves, regardless of our interpretation of the status quo. It's painful to consider. Let me use a very small example because it actually jumps the pond. In particular, I'm sure it's true in other states as well, but in California and in uh, next door Nevada, during the lockdown, during the pandemic at its peak, the governor of each state was caught on camera at a dinner party, unmasked, even while telling everyone that you have to socially distance, wear the mask, it's going to save lives, this is what you need to do, but they weren't following their own admonition. I understand, Becky, that much the same thing occurred over in the UK with a person in a high position of power. Yeah, absolutely. And and of course, you know, it's created a huge amount of uproar over here. Um, and 
you know, it wasn't it wasn't just one occasion. It was several occasions. And, um, you know, I think it's been it's been really tricky. And although I think I heard on the news that um, the police are not going to press charges against our prime minister. But I think that the that the damage in terms of trust that's been created, if you were to try and ask people to lock down again, would they, you know, off the back of all of this and to to and the catalogue of lies. So to sort of first of all say I knew nothing about it. Then to say, I didn't know, um, I didn't know it was a party. I thought it was a works meeting. And then to finally sort of say that they attended, you know, a, a, a works meeting with wine and cheese. It just got, it got ludicrous. But I think it's, I think, to me, there's something in this about this. I mean, from a working class background like mine, when you look at that, you just think that just comes from a place of arrogant privilege, that you just believe that the rules do not apply to you. There's a narcissism to it, to believe that the world, rules just do not apply and it really doesn't matter what you do. Um, and then on another hand, I kind of go, well, actually, if they were working together all of the time and they were stuck together in the same building, then you kind of go, well, it, does it really matter if if they weren't you know, isolated and working from home, if they were all working together, then actually having some drinks together after work wouldn't really matter if they're all stuck in the same building. But the facts of it and the details of it, we don't know, but we do know the betrayal. And I think a betrayal like that, when people didn't get to go to um, the, the, the deathbed of a loved one or the birth of their own child, and the people who have instigated those rules aren't sticking to them. That's the thing. It's interesting, there's, there's this, um, they say in studies that when people have to walk through uh, first class to get to standard class on an aeroplane, the increase of air rage goes up. And I think that we're hardwired for equality and fairness. And when we don't get it, it creates huge rage. And I think um, that's... That rage, and I think because it doesn't go anywhere or nothing really happens, then I think we're in this state of kind of apathy, this sort of what's the point? And then, of course, um, the, the, the cost of living is really going up for us as well at the moment, as I'm sure it is for you uh, there as well. Price of fuel, all of those other things. Um, a lot of this off the back of Brexit. Um, so they're sort of saying, oh, it's off the war. It's off the back of the war in Ukraine. For us, I don't think it is. I think a lot of it is off the back of Brexit. So again, how things are being spun is also very disappointing. Oh, things being spun. Um, this hardwired for where uh, for fairness is something that um, you know I I think is is really up for a lot of people. There there was a point in history where you actually accepted and knew things were not fair. You know, you had the king and you had all the subjects and you were either the super, super wealthy or you were nothing. And um, at this point in our history, with democracy, having, you know, lived all these millennia, I think people really are looking for things to be a little bit more fair, a little bit more just, and they're acutely aware of the kinds of things that, that you and Gary are talking about, where do as I say, not as I do, and, and people not walking their talk makes what they say inauthentic. 
it it makes them not trustworthy. It it makes them liars, and and uh, it, it it we're in a a time right now where people really don't trust their government officials. They really don't trust people in authority. I'm not sure what that where that takes us, or or you know how that bodes for the future that we have such cynicism about our leaders. I, I really hope that we start to um, question and quali- kind of, I don't know how to do this, but almost like some kind of psych- psychological test or analysis that sees whether someone is actually fit for that kind of office. And I don't know how that would take place or, or how we'd do it. But I think that to understand what someone's values are before they're in a position of power. Um, I like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And uh, they, uh, they go and see God and they say, are you God? And he says, I do try not to be. And um, it's the idea that, that anyone who wants to be in power probably shouldn't be. <laughs> yes yes if you want it what why would you you know um but then for people on the ground and you know i do a lot of work with um local government and local kind of councils and there are people who just genuinely go into councils because they really want to create great change and they they want to do things for their community and they feel that they're in the right time of life to be able to support their community and they're really really good people and they get a lot of really good work done um, and then there are others that are the see me doing good for good people. Look at me doing all of these lovely things. And they're the ones that I panic about because they're not they're not doing it for the, the, the you know, the love of it. They're doing it for the adoration of it. And when they don't get the adoration, that's when they can turn and and that's the people who can be corrupted by power, because then it's never enough. It's never enough power. You know, it's never enough notoriety. It's never enough attention. Um, and so sometimes that, that, that can, that's where the problem lies, I believe. Well, and then there's the entire group of people that says, well, what have you done for me lately? And they're the people who want to take no responsibility and do nothing. Just you do for me. And I'm just going to sit back and, and watch the, the television. And, yeah. you know, what are you doing for me now? You and know, then, and, and the lack of responsibility Facebook. about anything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And just completely complain about Facebook and the why don't yes. they do something about, you yes. know, taking photographs of, of overflowing bins. Well, you know, you could do something about it. Look at all of this litter. Yes, here's a photograph of the litter. I'm going to put it on the internet. Why don't you take a litter picker and help pick it up? Yes. <laughs> I don't get it. It's like, who are you yeah. telling that there's litter? It's like, who are you telling? You know, there's a role for everybody. There are people who find problems and there are people who solve problems. And it doesn't mean that it's the same person. Right. So it's, it's like everybody's got a role to play in this dance. But, um, you know, I wonder how, how are things actually getting better? I have, uh, I've, Gary and I have talked about a couple of instances lately where we are totally, totally thrilled with technology. It's like, wow, did you ever think you could find that so fast? I mean, it would have been a trip to the library, in the car, go drive, look up the microfilm somewhere, try to figure it out, you know, for hours on end, and then shut down the microfilm and return that and then drive home from the library to to get the answer to one question that you can now get on your phone in seconds. 
And, and so I said that the technology isn't all bad. None of this stuff is good or bad. It's how is it being used? Yeah, it really is. And I think that we are living in a great time. And to circle back to that very first question that you, that you brought up, which is, are things getting uh, better or worse? And I think, I think that there's a tipping point where you, you know, even the people who kind of like go sort of arms folded, moaning and not really being, uh, you know, that find problems rather than fix problems. I think there comes a tipping point where it's like a pendulum swing almost that you get to a point where you just go, I've had enough. And this is usually a breakthrough for how people find um, self-love. So they'll go, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. And then they'll go, I've had enough. Like you were talking about before about that sort of like, I don't care what people think. You suddenly go, I've had enough. And then that I've had enough breakthrough is the gateway into becoming more self-loving, more self-compassionate, more self-kind. And I think that that works on a, on a community scale as well. I've had enough of this. I've had enough of that, you know, becomes a transformation point to choosing love over fear or choosing to do something. But it, it, you have to get properly stroppy um, before you actually become animated into action. And I hope that if things are getting worse, that we reach a tipping point where people go, I've had enough of the way that things are and I'm going to do something about it. And I, I'm, I feel that there's a tipping point coming. Um, I, I really do. If there isn't, I mean, there has to be with climate change. Um, I, do th- I think we do get to a point where we're, we're, we can be quite last minute and then fix things. But I, I can see it starting to happen with climate change that people are starting to realise that we can't trust the governments to solve climate change. We can't trust them at all. So it has to come down to us to save the entire planet. And that comes down to the individual because we are in a crisis moment. So if things are getting worse, and I think you're right about technology, I think we can solve huge amounts of this uh, global crisis that we've got with climate change with technology. So it's great. So hopefully um, we will suddenly... I think hopefully we'll use this point where we can't trust our governments to actually take on the ground action to change the things that we need to change in the world. That was big, wasn't it? (laughs) Yes, very good. And when you add in lobbyists and vested interests, you just redouble the problem or even exponentiate it. I say that because when I think about what we in America refer to as big oil, if An energy resource, be it electricity, be it wind power, solar power, if big oil could retool, reinvent, and reimagine their vast industry and thereby make as much or more profit than they do now, they would be leading the parade for change. Too right. And it's funny you mentioned this because um, I spoke earlier about Western Supermare where I live. we are we have a project called sea monster and it's sea as in kind of like look at the monster rather than sea as in the ocean um, and we're uh, moving a disused oil platform um, that's been out in the north sea for um, 10 to 20 years and we're bringing it onto the beach in western supermare and we're transforming it into a reusable energy platform so it uses the weather and uh, in order to create Uh, and generate power so it has solar panels it has wind turbines and it's on three floors so it's got a garden lab 
science lab. It's got a waterfall coming off it. It will generate generate its own clouds and rainbows. And it's got a helicopter pad where talks can take place. Um, and if you look at it online, if you go see Monster um, Western Supermare uh, online, you'll see images of what this is going to look like. And in a way, bringing an oil platform, which has been regarded to be and uh, the our past, and we've got to honour it, but in a very negative kind of connotation now, and then to reimagine that entire oil rig to have a completely different look and then move it to Western Supermare. The, to, and it's under the theme of um, STEAM as well, which is science, technology, uh, engineering, uh, arts and maths. And we're creating all of these education pieces to go out to schools. And even if we could just influence a, a small number of kids to take up uh, subjects in STEM, to go into STEM industries, to look at environment, to do all of that work, just by bringing this huge disused oil platform to Western Superman, reimagining it, I think it... I think to me, looking at it will just expand your mind. It will blow your mind just even thinking about that. Because unless you've worked in the oil industry, you don't get to stand on these things. You don't get to look around them. So to look around one that's been completely reimagined in this way, coming to a town that is trying to reimagine itself from being a rundown Victorian seaside town into being a, a place that is a, a hub for education because we've got a really amazing college so exciting and I can't believe I'm working on this project um, I'm so I'm the community manager which if you know this town that's like saying why don't you herd some cats um, <laughs> so, this this community cannot be managed but it can be included in the project and that's what I've been working really hard to do so people have been coming up with ideas of things they want to put on the platform while it's here but also to create a festival of steam in the town while Sea Monster is here getting the footfall of like 200,000 people that are going to come probably more because it's going in the same place that Banksy did Dismal Land uh, so it's quite um, we had Brad Pitt come over and all of these things so hopefully we're going to get people to come into our uh, town to eat in our restaurants and stay in our hotels as well as going and seeing this incredible event so it's really exciting so yeah will the platform be taken back out into the north sea or now will it be permanently land-based no it's going to be scrapped and it's going to have all of the steel recycled okay so it literally is going to be an eight-week art installation and then it and then it gets recycled which is in itself bonkers Yes, yes. I do like the idea of repurposing. You use the word reimagining. And I, you know, I think of putting something to a new purpose. And I wonder, uh, I've wondered out loud several times, what's going to happen to all the gas stations, because there are so many in the United States, they're, they're just prevalent everywhere. Uh, At least two that I have seen in my little town have been turned into restaurants. One, one, one is a coffee shop and one is a restaurant. And, um, and so I, I do think that repurposing some of these places for uh, needs today is going to be very exciting to see what they turn into. You know? Yeah, we've got an old gas works that's now a museum. You know, and it's not a museum of gasworks. It is a museum, you know, so it's a museum for the town. So it's got a little cafe in it and everything and education rooms and stuff. But yeah, I mean, because I mean, housing wise, we've got such a um, a problem with housing, you know, not enough sort of like flats and things. But there's all sorts of things like um, disused churches being turned into yes. apartments and, yeah. you know, banks being turned into pubs. <laughs> 
We have a bank that was turned into a restaurant that's uh, a few blocks from where we live. And it was an abandoned bank and it had all of the drive-through lanes in it. They left the drive-through lanes and created part of the restaurant outside with screening so that you could go and eat in the nice weather outside. And, and so, again, I'm, I'm fascinated by people's imaginations and how it is that they can view things and get them changed into something useful. Yeah. And, and this is and this is the excitement, because if we keep thinking like that and keep reimagining, then I think that we can like be putting plants on the sides of buildings and be, uh, be um, flowers on the top of bus stops and lots of things, lots of things. So it is exciting yeah. times. Yep, very good. We only have a couple of minutes left. So Becky, with upcoming projects, anything you would like for our listeners and your friends listening over in the UK, what is it that you want to know? What parting words? Yeah, I would I blah, blah, parting words. I just think um I think that we're living at a time of of, of incredible change. And I think on, on a bad day I can look at it and just go, that's it, we're going to hell in a handbag. But on a good day, I kind of like really feel that all of this transition that we're going through, if you look back in history, it's always turned out all right. It, it there's it's always had something um transformation come out of it. But be part of the change and get involved in it, even if it feels scary. Just just get your do, do what Suzanne was doing and get out there and do the gardening, get yourself dirty. <laughs> you know, there was one other thing that you said that I'd like to share as well. Uh, I was reading something of yours where you said, either said or wrote, sharing in misery isn't always helpful. And sometimes you, you're you connecting heart to heart with the things that are bothering you. But you said, always say something positive as well. Yeah. Don't just leave it in misery. Anxiety is one of the fastest uh, moving emotions. It's contagious. It moves from one person to another. And um, and so the more you, if you're feeling anxious and you're sharing it with someone else, you may walk away feeling better, but it actually spreads. Yeah. So say something positive to somebody today, even, even if you're complaining beforehand. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, be the antidote to your own to yourself. <laughs> there you go. Tenth visit, Becky. So happy to have talked to you today. And let's not wait very long before your eleventh visit, Becky. We we're always thrilled to talk to you. You bring a lot of intelligence and a lot of grace to our airwaves. So thank you once again. Oh, thanks for having me back. I can't believe it's the tenth time. I should have sent you a cake. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Next time. It's okay. Next time. I'll do that. <laughs> Becky Walsh, everybody. Thank you for tuning in today. Always glad to have you with us, everyone. And we hope that you have a fantastic weekend. We'll be back next Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific. Available, of course, AM 1150 or 1150kknw.com. 